Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, friends, we are in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible, we'd like to give you one. They're right available outside the door. Someone will bring you one if uh, you just let them know you need one. But we are in Matthew chapter 26. We've been moving through this gospel and moving through this particular chapter. Now, and I'll remind you of where we are in the context of the chapter. Last week, there were two different events that occurred. The first of those events was one of Jesus' disciples, a woman by the name of Mary, seems to be just a sweet, dear, sincere woman with a little bit of information we're given by her. And she enters into this room where Jesus is. It's six days before his crucifixion. And she enters into this room and she pours out this vessel of uh, anointing oil on Jesus' head. And she begins, as it runs down, she begins to wipe his feet. And Jesus, people looking at the whole scene, Jesus says, she has prepared my body for burial. It was her act of worship, what she could do to honor the Lord in preparation of what was about to come his way, his crucifixion. That event we saw, we saw a second event, which is the decision of Judas, seemingly connected to that other event, but the decision of Judas to finally betray the Lord. For 25 pieces, or 30 pieces of silver, I, I should say, what we equated to about $25 in, in value, he would betray the Lord. Two events couldn't be more opposite of one another. The devotion of this lady and the betrayal of this guy, both disciples of the Lord going in completely different directions. So now that's the context. We are in the, we're in the Passover week. Jesus has been telling them what is about to happen, that he's going to go to the cross and be betrayed. I read to you that the night before all of these events, they're having a Passover meal. And we looked at that in verses 17 to 19. And today we're going to look at what happens at that particular meal. So let me reread verses 17 to 19 and then go right into today's passage. It says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Verse 20, Now when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful, and they began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to them, to him, You have said so. So here they are. They're gathered together for the Passover meal. It's the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. I pointed out last week that the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a seven-day feast and that the Passover was the first day of that seven-day feast. It was a national feast, which meant all able-bodied men had to make their way to Jerusalem. And so everyone lives within you know, 200 miles or so of Jerusalem, and all able-bodied men, and typically their families, would make their way to Jerusalem to celebrate this particular feast. This is the third time. It's one of the ways we can figure out how long Jesus' earthly ministry was, because this is the third time we see Jesus making his way to Jerusalem to celebrate this particular feast. Likely, 
he did it 33 times. Came first with mom and dad, and then he came uh, on his own when he became an adult. And as we see in the scriptures, he comes three three times. Now, I pointed out last week that the Passover would have begun on the evening of what was the 13th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar. Now, it's actually the 14th day of their calendar, but that begins on our 13th day. Remember, it begins at sundown. And since their calendar doesn't perfectly carry over to our calendar, so really the beginning of their month would be about the 14th or 15th day of our month, that puts this event somewhere around March 28th or 29th of that particular year. So we're just about coming up on what would be our April, so to speak. And this particular night that the Passover begins is going to be a Thursday evening. So in that week of things that we've been looking at, we saw he comes into the city on a Sunday. The next day, he's overturning tables. The next couple of days, he's interacting at the temple, kind of a tense interaction. Here we are now on Thursday of that particular week. He's going to gather with the disciples, celebrate the Passover Notice what it says again in verse 20. It says, when he was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. Now it almost seems like there's a key word missing there. He reclined at the table or, or whatever. We don't typically recline at our tables. We might sit back and unbutton our pants or something because so, we ate too much food. And we might sit back, recline, so to speak. And so this phrase here that he reclined at table is a little different. The concept's a little different from what we might picture. And so in our minds, and we have pictures in our minds of Da Vinci's Last Supper or something. Do we have that? Look how artistic we are. We are a cutting-edge church of uh, very important people. So you have this sort of Last Supper, and they're all gathered on the same side of the table. Everybody get in the picture, you know, or whatever. They're on the same side over there. That's really not what it would have looked like in actuality. When it talks about they reclined that table, there wouldn't really have even been a table at all present. There would have been a mat probably uh, laid out on the floor, and each of the folks would sort of lay in a circle on their arm or on their elbow with their head toward their dirty old feet out away from the table, but with their head kind of toward there, and then they would reach in and they would get food for themselves. So they wouldn't be sitting actually at a table. So that's the first thing in your mind, sort of picture them lying around. So when it talks about that uh, John and Jesus were next to one another, and he sort of leaned himself back on the breast of Jesus. Well, that's how that could work, because he's just sort of there, and he said, hey, and he asked him a question. And I don't know if you have any idea what I'm talking about. It's in another passage of Scripture, but nonetheless. So that's the first thing. Secondly, there wouldn't have been chairs. So certainly not chairs around the table, maybe one in the corner or something like that. And so again, these guys are all laying on the ground, on their elbow, eating this meal. And it's while the meal is going on, as they're lying there side by side with one another, we read in verse 21, as they were eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. Now certainly very sobering words in the context of this meal. Now this meal would have been like your Thanksgiving meal, like your Christmas dinner or something. Uh, it's, or Easter or something like that, or Good Friday if you're going to gather together. It would have been an opportunity for the people to gather. There would have been a sobriety to the time because of all the stuff that went on and as they're kind of considering what God did for them and his mercy and his grace and all of that. But at the same time, it would have been a feast. It would have been a celebration. It would have been something they looked forward to. This would have been one of their best meals of the year to be able to gather together and enjoy. And so there would have been a, sort of an enthusiasm to the meal And then in the midst of that, 
Jesus says, this night, one of you will betray me. No doubt changes the complete context of the meal or the feel of the meal. As I said, very, very sobering words. Now, what Matthew does not convey to us is some of the other events that occurred just before Jesus makes that statement. And so it's important for us to look in other parts of the Scripture, and John tells us that just prior to making this statement, that Jesus does one of the most remarkable things that Jesus does in the Scriptures. And we read about it in John 13. It says, during the meal that Jesus got up, verse 4, he laid aside his outer garments, and he took a towel and tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. God in the flesh, the Savior, the clear, undeniable rabbi to these men, would get up, remove his outer garment, put a towel around his waist, a long towel, so he would have some space on there, and he would begin to wash the feet of his disciples. It was an act of extreme humility on the part of the Lord. Now, it was a very common act, it's very calm. We wouldn't do it. We thought it'd be fun to have a foot washing this morning. And then Will was like, it's a bad idea, bad idea. Nobody wants their feet washed or whatever. But it was a very common act in their day where a lot of the guys, people didn't have shoes. Or if they did, they were essentially something that was, we would call it a sandal, but just sort of a, a sole that was wrapped around their feet to protect them from stones or whatever it might be. So you got a lot of people with a lot of dirty feet. And particularly for a fancy meal, a feast like this, it was the norm where you would come in and the host of this place would wash your feet. Now, it typically wouldn't be the host of this place. It would be the low man on the totem pole. You're the new guy, you're the foot washer. Oh, come on, why do I got to do it? I don't know if I want to work this job anymore. Because the feet could get pretty grimy. And there's all other stuff that could be added in, animal feces and so on, that are in the dust. And all of that stuff is there. I don't want to wash anybody's feet. And so it it was a task that fell to the lowliest of the servants, certainly not by a distinguished rabbi, even if you just take this from a human perspective. Not that Jesus is God in the flesh. Just from a human perspective, certainly not by this distinguished rabbi who the people threw a parade for four days earlier. He's not going to be the guy to wash our feet. And yet Jesus gets up. Now, it's no wonder, again, in another place that Peter would rise up and he would say, no, no, not my feet, Lord. No, never will you wash me, he says to him. And you recall Jesus says to him, if I don't wash your feet, then you're not a part of me. He says, oh, then wash my whole body. I'll take it. Whatever you want to give me. You know, you can give me a big bath here. No, thank you. (laughs) That's not, not where I was going, Peter. I'm not giving you a bath. Or whatever, And so, no wonder Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. Because again, it was a task of the lowliest of servants. And now you have the king of kings himself taking this lowly position to wash the feet of his disciples. And it's just one of many examples in Jesus' life where he would lay aside his deity, so, so to speak. Not that he wasn't God anymore, but he would lay that aside and take the form of a servant ultimately culminating when he would go to the cross on behalf of each of us. As I've been saying, in Mark 10, Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is just one of those acts of humility on his part in this next 18 hours or so, which will be filled with acts of humility. Now, what's so remarkable to me 
about that statement earlier, one of you will betray me, is that in that room, to the people that he said, one of you will betray me, just moments earlier, he washed that betrayer's feet. That jumps out to me. Because here's the guy that's going to betray me. You know what I would do? I'd make my way around and I'd skip that guy. No, no wash for you. Or whatever. And yet Jesus washes the feet, even of Judas. And you have to imagine that account, encounter as Jesus kneels down before Judas and in humility begins to serve him and wash the feet of the one that would betray him for just a mere 30 pieces of silver. And again, if this had been a meal, this had been one of rejoicing, things are certainly changing as Jesus pronounces that one of you will betray me. Again, he has brought the disciples back to the reality of what's going to happen in about 18 hours, that he's going to go to a cross, his betrayal, arrest, and ultimately his crucifixion. Now Matthew points out in verse 22 of Matthew 26 that the disciples hearing that, they were sorrowful. And they began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? I think it's significant to note that the disciples, one after the other, each begin to ask, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? I mean, think about how differently that would be if instead we read, read one after the other, each disciple began to say, is it him, Lord? Is it, it's probably her, isn't it? No, it's him. How different the context of things would be. But rather than each disciple kind of looking at the other, and sort of evaluating the other, yeah, it's probably that guy. I've had my doubts about him since this whole thing started. Rather, they each express that they have doubts about themselves. And it's not a fake doubt either. It's not a spiritual, of course it's not you. You're my number one disciple. It's not a fake doubt at all where they're just looking for Jesus to commend them. Each one of them actually believes that it could be them. And so they're inquiring, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? And can I just say this, that such, we'll call that self-doubt, that such self-doubt is a very good and healthy thing to have in your walk with Christ. Self-doubt, humility, is a good thing for you to have in your walk with Christ. The Apostle Paul would later write these words. He would say, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Let anyone that thinks he stands has no self-doubt. I'm good to go. I'm doing well with Jesus. Everything is great. And I'm running along and I'll never go back to those days before. Whatever. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It's when we think that we stand that we begin to let down our guard. That we begin to kind of coast through our spiritual walk without much dependence on the Lord any longer. And we get pretty confident in ourselves. And as Paul points out, those are the times that we begin to set ourselves up for a coming fall. And so these disciples here, they don't pretend to doubt their own commitment and in humility they simply say, Lord, is it, is it I? Now Jesus, notice what he says in verse 23. It's he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me that will betray me. He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me that will betray me. He doesn't really answer their questions. Is it I? No, it's not you. Is it I? No, it's not you. He doesn't really answer their questions. He just throws out this statement, it's the one who has dipped his hand in the dish with me. And we might look at, and you might be looking around, who did? You know, who has? Well, they all have. They've been having this meal together. And they've all been dipping their bread into the, uh, the meat juice there, or the soup, or stew of sorts, whatever it might be. They've all been dipping and taking it. And so Jesus' point isn't making some statement 
so they can figure it out who it's going to be. His point is, I believe, it's a reference back to the Old Testament prophecy. And in the Old Testament, the, the, the king David, he wasn't a king at the time, I don't recall actually, he, he might have been, but in Psalm chapter 41, David there is speaking of the fact that one of his very close friends, whom he trusted, actually betrayed him. And Matthew points out that David didn't realize it, but what David was saying was a prophecy. And so we read in Psalm 41, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So when Jesus is saying, one who has dipped his hand in the dish with me, he wasn't trying to get them, you know, giving them a clue as to who it was going to be. He was simply trying to point to the fact it was going to be one of his inner core, one of his very close friends, one of his very close disciples, who had probably walked daily with him for the last three and a half years. It was one of them that would betray him. That prophecy, once again, confirms that none of the events that are happening in the days leading up to Jesus' crucifixion are outside of the control of God. But rather that all of these things are coming together exactly as God designed them to come together from the foundation of the world. God hasn't lost control of these events. Now, that does not take Judas off the hook. Judas is still responsible for his actions, even though his actions have been prophesied long before. So the Lord might be sovereignly orchestrating these events, but Judas, nevertheless, will be responsible for his actions and the decisions that he's making. And so Jesus emphasizes that in verse 24. Look, he says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him, for that man, if he had not even been born. So as all of these things are falling into place exactly as the Lord designed for them to take place, we read here that the consequences for Judas's actions would be severe indeed. Jesus even saying it would be better if that man had not even been born. Now, a little heavenly imagination. What if, G what if Judas, after hearing what Jesus said, repented? Where Jesus says, you know, it, where Judas said, is it I? And he said, you've said it. Yes, it's you. What if Judas there would have repented? What if he broke down in tears and confessed how he agreed, had already agreed to betray the Lord and he was sorry and all of that? Would the Lord have accepted him? Would he have received him unto himself? I believe he would have. Now, it's all theoretical and it's merely fodder for debate and really to start a fight, you know, or whatever. So we probably shouldn't necessarily go there because we don't know. Really, the answer is, well, he didn't. But had he, I believe the testimony of Scripture, the example that we see in Scripture is that the Lord would have forgiven him. But instead of repenting, notice in verse 25, he, that's where he asks this question, is it I, Rabbi? Yes, it's you. You know what you did. You know exactly what you did. You went down, you found the chief priests and elders, you found an agreed upon price, and you began to set up a plan to betray the Lord. And now you're going to ask me, is it I, Lord? Yes, it's you. Notice he asks the exact same questions as the others. Is it I? But I think even though he used the same words, I think it's an entirely different question because they're asking this question from a place of humility and self-doubt. He's asking the question from a place of hypocrisy. And he's saying it is I, Lord, when of course we know that it is you. You've already set up the plan. 
I, one other last thing. I think it's an interesting to note that it seems as if Judas is the last to ask the question, almost as if it went around in a circle, and he's the last guy, and finally he says, is it I? Charles Spurgeon pointed this out. He said, those who are last to suspect themselves are usually those who ought to be the first to exercise self-suspicion. You know, in, in a practical way, I think about when I'm in a dispute with somebody else, very rarely happens, but when I'm in a, when I'm in a dispute with somebody else, the first thing that comes to my mind are the hundred ways that they're at fault. And then finally, the hundred and one way, I don't think that's a right word, the hundred and first way comes to my mind. And it's like, you know, maybe it's you. And those who need to suspect themselves the most usually suspect themselves last. And Judas, it seems, is the last to suspect, suspect himself. He said, is it I? Again, a bit of self-doubt is actually healthy in your walk. And the absence of it should be a cause for concern in your walk. Now, verse 25 concludes, Jesus says to him, you have said so. Now, yes, is it me? You said it, or whatever. You would think the rest of the disciples would look at each other and say, get him, or whatever, and tackle him, or whatever. And yet they don't. And you think, well, what are you doing? Pay attention. You know, he asked and, and so on. But it seems there's something else that is going on. It seems that the comment went unnoticed. John points out that as part of that answer, Jesus says some additional stuff as well. And so we read in John 13 that Jesus, after is saying, you said it, it's you, whatever, he says, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now notice what John adds, that no one at the table knew why Jesus said that to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him to go get some food for the feast. Some thought that he was going to give a gift to the poor. And so it seems there's something more to, yes, it's you, and nobody does anything about it, but that there's some confusion as to go do what you need to do. Okay, he's going to buy food or whatever. And so the disciples, not knowing what he meant, they assume what's going on here. Judas, he gets up uh, and leaves, and now he goes, and he's going to deliver Jesus to the chief priest and the elders. Remember, they wanted a place away from the crowd where... Uh, they could arrest Jesus. And so Judas, it seems, has found that place. He realizes, you may not be familiar, but the very next scene in our passage is the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus would go and pray and sometimes teach his disciples when he was in Jerusalem. That's where they're headed next. And so it seems Judas found his place. He's going to quickly get down to the chief priest and he's going to say, look, he's going to be in a private place. Now's the perfect time for you to arrest him. And notice it says in John 13, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. Now with Judas out of the room, now there's just 12 guys sitting in there, Jesus and 11 others. And we read in verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he drank Excuse me. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. No doubt you're familiar with the passage. Just about every time we gather and have communion together, we reference it. So let's try to look at it from the perspective of these guys. This is all new to them. Now, they've been celebrating Passover meals uh, for many years. 
depending on their age, 25, 30, 40, 50 years, uh, these guys have been celebrating the Passover meals. And now what Jesus does is he takes some familiar items that are already going to be on that Passover table, some bread and some wine or a cup of wine, and he takes some familiar items and he's going to give them new meaning. And so he takes the bread, as we see there in verse 26, and he says, take, eat. This is my body. Now, Jesus is the leader. This isn't his home, but he's the leader of this Passover meal. And at this stage of the meal, so there's, and we're going to do a Passover celebration, by the way, a Messianic Passover Seder. It's going to be on a Saturday night in April. It's going to be a lot of fun. Kids, adults, everybody can come, and I'm looking forward to it. And we have a uh, Messianic rabbi that's coming in, and he's going to lead us in this awesome Passover meal. And I need a lot of you to make food for that event. And so when you hear the information, make sure you sign up for it. But anyway, you, you have the real meal, sort of like where you really satisfy yourself, and then you have like the ceremonial aspect. And so at this point in the meal, the, whoever's leading, Jesus, is going to stand up and take the bread, he'll take the cup, and he's going to say some things about that. That's what Jesus is doing, but he's going to say something different from what they normally would have heard. So he takes the bread and he says, this is my body, and another place it says, which is broken for you, or which is given for you. And he tells them, take and eat, this is my body. And then he takes a pitcher of wine, I imagine, I don't, it doesn't say this, but he takes a pitcher of wine and I imagine he pours it out into a cup and he says, and this is my blood that is poured out for you. And so he takes the bread, he takes the cup, he assigns to them, if you will, new meaning and he gives to us what we commonly know of as the Lord's Supper or as the communion table. Changing the symbolism because from this time forward, the, symbolic, the symbolism is going to be symbolic of him. The bread, again, symbolizing his body. The blood symbolizing his blood. Uh, his, the cup symbolizing his blood. As his, the, body, the bread is broken, so his body would be. As the cup is poured out, so his blood would be poured out. And he takes the familiar, as I said. Now notice what he does in verse 20, uh, 28 there. He makes reference to a new covenant. King James says a New Testament. Verse 27, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Some versions say, My blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It's a purposeful reference back to a prophecy of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah chapter 20, or excuse me, 31, Jeremiah says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each of one teach his neighbor and each his brother. No longer will they go out street witnessing and evangelizing to their co-workers at work saying, Know ye the Lord, for they shall all know the Lord. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Notice again, Jeremiah points out it's a new covenant. A new covenant where God's word wouldn't merely be written on tablets of stone, but instead they would be written 
on the tablets of their heart, it says in verse 33. That it's a new covenant where God would not just provide a temporary covering for sin, where they'd have to come back again and again every year for a covering for their sin, but as it says there in the verse, a true cleansing from sin, where their iniquity would be removed, it says in verse 34. This is a new covenant which will be marked by relationship where there, were, where there once was not the ability to have that intimacy of relationship. The Apostle Paul would say this in Ephesians in explaining these things further. He would say, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's because of the new covenant that we sinners could come into the presence of a holy God without any separation. You remember after Jesus died that the temple veil was torn in two. And it was behind the veil that the Holy of Holies resided. It was behind the veil that the Shekinah of God, the very presence of God, chose to dwell in that space. But after Jesus' death, that veil was miraculously, from top to bottom, torn in two. Symbolizing, speaking to the fact that we have access now to come into the presence of God. That's the result of the new covenant. Our sin doesn't separate us anymore because our sin hasn't just been covered over, it's been taken away. And that's what Jesus is referring to when he speaks of this new covenant that he would make payment for our sin. Now, look, let's return to 26, verse 29 of chapter 26. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You're included, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, you're included in that with you. Jesus is speaking of what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Right after the rapture, we said we have the instance where we come before the judgment seat of Christ, where our deeds are judged, and then the marriage supper of the Lamb, the conclusion of which will be the return of Jesus Christ with his saints. And so Jesus is saying here, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until I do so with you anew in my Father's kingdom, speaking of that marriage supper of the Lamb. Verse 30 continues, Now when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Verse 30 begins by saying, they went out and sung a hymn. If the crucifixion were ahead of you in just a few hours, would you be singing hymns? I can't imagine that I would. And yet Jesus and the group, Jesus leads the group in the singing of a hymn, certainly, that causes us to wonder, I wonder what hymn they actually sang at this particular point. And I think we can safely conclude the hymn because the Passover meal would have been completed with the singing of the Psalms, particularly Psalms 113 to 118. It's called the Hallel. And so I suspect that's what they were singing. And so if you go back and you look at Psalms 113 through 118, you can imagine the words that Jesus was singing with the disciples and it's very interesting some of the things that they would have sang that evening. Let me draw your attention to some of them. 
And consider these verses as Jesus knows he's about to go to the cross. Consider these words coming out of his mouth. Psalm 116, verse 3 and 4. I'm not going to sing it to you. I'll just read it to you. thought that would be nice on my part. It says, Now the snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. And then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. This is from verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 116. It says, For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. This is from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in his eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And of course, we know in the New Testament, specifically that verse about the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone is applied to Jesus Christ. And so if indeed this is what Jesus was singing as he went out with his disciples, he's kind of going through this process of the anguish that he's going to experience, and we'll look at it as he prays in the garden to being sort of his soul being strengthened again to this proclamation, this statement that this is the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in his eyes that this is the day that the Lord has made, that before the foundation of the earth, it was determined that Christ would come and give his life for sinners. This is the day that the Lord has made. Amazing it must have been. What an encouragement to his soul these songs must have been as he prepared himself for what was before him. And so there with his disciples now, they're either at the Mount of Olives or on, they're on their way to the Mount of Olives. They're leaving that, uh, that meal that they were celebrating uh, there, the Passover meal. It's on the way there or when they got there that Jesus says, you will all fall away because of me this night. He says, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Once again, Jesus references an Old Testament prophecy. He references the book of Zechariah. It's chapter 13, verse 7. And once again, making it clear that none of this is out of the control of the Lord. That every one of these things has been uh, prophesied beforehand. That the sheep would be scattered. Jesus makes it clear that what he's about to do is not going to be a group effort. But it's a work that he himself must do by himself. And so all of the disciples will scatter. His closest friends and disciples will depart, as Zechariah points it out. And alone, he would take upon himself the sin of the entire world. Notice Jesus says in verse 32, After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Two points of hope in that statement. Number one is that though they would all fall away, as he just said, that they would be restored. And that the relationship would come back together again, where they would be gathered together again in Galilee, they would be reunited. And the second thing is, though he would be delivered up unto death, he will be raised again. Two points of hope that are found here in this statement that Jesus makes here. But hearing this, notice what Peter does. He's quick to defend himself. He says, though they all fall away, who's they? His buddies that are standing around him. Look, all these schmoes, Lord. They might fall away, but I would never fall away. I'll stay with you even if I have to die with you. It's the exact opposite of what happened at the meal, where they all expressed self-doubt and said, is it I, is it I, is it I? 
Now, Peter, resting on his determination, his commitment, whatever it may be, says, everyone else may fall away, but I won't. There they exercise self-doubt. Here, he exercises no doubt. He's certain. He's correcting the Lord. And he exercises no doubt at all, no humility. Self-confidence, confidence, pride. As though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Have you ever had a day like that or an evening like that where you do really well with the Lord at 10 a.m., but by 4 p.m. you find yourself doing things you can't believe later on that you did where you kind of go through these processes or whatever? That's why we need self-doubt. That's why we need humility. Oh, no. Did I do something? Forgive me. Remember again Paul's words. He said, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, Paul hadn't written those words yet. But had he written them? And Peter, had he remembered them? Or at least the idea of what they're conveying? He probably wouldn't have been so quick to defend himself. He says, Lord, I will never fall away. And Peter, or excuse me, Jesus responds, not only will you fall away, you'll do so tonight, and you'll deny me three times in the process this very night. But despite Jesus' reiteration, Peter comes back at him just as forcefully. He says, Lord, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And Jesus kind of lets it drop, so to speak. I'm going to get an argument with you. We'll see what happens. And I think that's good, by the way. It'll work itself out. You don't have to fight with somebody to convince them your point. Um, That's an aside, though. Now, Lest we throw Peter under the bus, notice what Matthew adds, and all the disciples said the same. Yeah, right, Lord, absolutely, Lord, of course, Lord. They all jump in there as well. But again, it was Peter that makes the statement, and it's Peter that so emphatically repeats the claim. And so it's Peter that is included for us in the Scripture. Now, is he being a hypocrite? Is Peter being hypocritical? Because what some might say later is, you're such a hypocrite. You said you wouldn't do that. You see, I don't think that's hypocrisy. Uh, An hypocrisy is when you sort of do something despite what you said, and it's almost as if you had the plan all along to do it. We fall. And so what happens in the Christian walk is you're at work, and you're the Christian there or whatever, and something happens, and you, you say something, you do something, you act a particular way, and now people turn on you, and they say, I thought you were the Christian, you hypocrite. You're a hypocrite like all the rest. No, because I've been saying all along I'm a sinner. And things come out that I wish they didn't come out, and Jesus is changing me in the process. It's not hypocrisy to sin. It's, what Judas did was hypocrisy. Now, if Peter would go on from there and there'd be no repentance, and he would defend his actions, or, well, I'm just a weak man, what, could, what would you expect or whatever? Now he's entering into that realm. But what Peter does here, I believe he is a sincere man, a sincere disciple, thought he would never betray the Lord, but when the crowds came and the knives and all of that, and you could see what happened, his heart was swayed. I really believe Peter was convinced with all of his heart that even if all the others abandoned the Lord, that he would never. But here's the problem. Our hearts can be deceived. So even if Peter was most sincere and believed with all of his heart that he would never betray the Lord, the reality is he did, because our hearts can be deceived. And so that's why we are told to guard our hearts. That's why, again, Paul says, third time now I'm saying it today, this is our lesson, 
Third time is, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. It's when we overestimate ourselves that we begin to convince ourselves that we're stronger than the Lord knows us to be. That's when the fall is on the horizon. When we begin to overestimate ourselves. When we stop reading our Bible or praying or gathering together with the saints and we convince ourselves, well, I'll be okay. I'll be all right. I've been doing this walk thing a long time here. I'll check back in with the Lord on Sunday. Be careful. You're setting yourself up for a fall. It's when we start playing around with the liquor and telling ourselves, it'll be okay. I can handle it. Be careful. Be very careful. It's when we start lingering a little too long on that show that comes by as we're using the remote. And we linger a little long there. We'll be like, all right, I'll be okay. Really what I want to do, I want to see it so that in my heart I can say, oh, that's so wrong. Really? Is that what you're doing? Be careful. It's when you're playing around on your computer and that little cursor is getting a little closer to those ads on the side. And you linger a little long and the cursor makes its way over there. That's when you need to be careful. It's when we begin to overestimate ourselves that we set ourselves up for a fall. If I may suggest to you, underestimate your ability to stand. Say to yourself things like, you know what, I'm not even taking a sip. For if I do, who knows where that'll go. I'm not even going to that channel. I'm going to figure out, I'm going to call my kids over to show me how to block it. Alrighty, I'm going to figure out how to do so. I'm not even going to that channel. For if I do, you know, I'm going to put the computer right out in the middle of the living room. So that anytime I get on it, there's 15 other people in the house that are around me underestimate your ability to stand because it's when you underestimate your ability to stand and walk with Christ that you actually do stand and walk with Christ because it's based on dependence upon him and it seems Peter has forgotten that now the passage continues it says Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples sit here while I go over there and pray and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee he began to be sorrowful he began to be troubled Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you, as you will. Now, Matthew points out in verse 36 that they went to this place that's called Gethsemane. And that while he was there, Jesus separated himself a bit from his disciples. We see that in verse 36. Jesus tells, or excuse me, John tells us that Jesus often went to this garden of Gethsemane when he was in Jerusalem. Jesus didn't live in Jerusalem, but when he was down there for these feasts and so on, that he often took his disciples there. It was a quiet place from the hubbub of the, the city of Jerusalem. He would pray with his disciples. He would teach his disciples. So we know that. Verse John 18.2 says Judas knows that. And so he knows Jesus' routine, so to speak, that that's where they're going to go. Or maybe Jesus said, hey, guys, we're going to pick up and leave here and head over to Gethsemane. And Judas takes that info. He's going to go tell the chief priest. Gethsemane is located at the foot of the Mount of Olives. It may actually be considered part of the Mount of Olives. It's sort of between the high point of the Mount of Olives and the, the Kidron Valley that is down there. That's Gethsemane. We have a picture of it. Oh, there's no circle. Bummer. Okay. I'll jump. 
uh, just this is a church building. That church building wasn't there when Jesus was walking. Just to the left of that from where you're looking, you'll see there's a bus there and a bunch of trees. That's the Garden of Gethsemane. We go there on our, our trip to Israel. It's a beautiful place. It's still a quiet place uh, there today. And so taking the 11 disciples, Jesus goes to this quiet place in the garden and he pulls himself aside from them. We read there in verse 37, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which we know are James and John. So he took three of the 11. He says, guys, let's just go a little bit further by ourselves from even those 11. And it says that he began to be sorrowful and troubled. It's an interesting word, that word troubled. It means to be heavily weighed down. No doubt a lot of you have experience where you're heavily weighed down by something that is troubling you. Well, that's what's going on with the Lord. He's heavily weighed down by what's ahead of him. Because in moments now, not years, not months, not even weeks and days, but now in moments from this time that he is in, in this particular moment, the authorities are going to come and they're going to arrest him and they're going to mock him and they're going to beat him and ultimately they're going to crucify him. And that's just moments ahead of him, maybe within an hour or so. And so he's anguished. He's greatly troubled. He's weighed down by this. But I don't actually think that alone is what's troubling him, that all the beating that's going to come, the physical torture that is going to come his way. Certainly, that is no doubt troubling to some degree. But I would suggest to you what is really troubling the Lord is what's about to happen spiritually. Again, the Apostle Paul would write later on explaining to us what's going on there spiritually. And he would describe it this way in 1 Corinthians 5. He said, For our sake, God the Father made God the Son, God made Him, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. I would suggest to you this is what's troubling the Lord. That Jesus was even now taking upon himself the sin of the entire world and that that task was weighing heavily upon him. That he who knew no sin was becoming sin on our behalf that he might pay our penalty for the debt that each of our sin incurred. That he was becoming, he, he was becoming sin so that you and I might become righteousness. The word Gethsemane, it means olive press. That little garden there just outside of the hubbub of uh, the, the temple and all of that, it was a tree orchard, an olive tree orchard. And there the olives were, would be picked from the trees and they would be crushed and they would be broken so that they could make the highly coveted Jerusalem olive oil, the Jerusalem oil. And it's certainly no coincidence that in the place where the olives would be crushed and broken, that that's where Jesus is being crushed and broken with the weight of the sin of the world that is coming upon him. And so he gathers there in Gethsemane to pray. Verse 38 says, Jesus says, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Peter, James, John, remain here and watch with me. Pray with me. And it, it must have been written on his face what was ahead of him. The trouble that was coming upon him. Certainly it was communicated with his words. He said, my soul is very sorrowful. His soul was in anguish at the process that was unfolding where the sinless one who had never once experienced any separation from the Father, where the sinless one was now about to be forsaken by the Father. You see, we can't understand that. 
Because all of us have experienced separation from God before because of our sin. And even when we're humming along and things are going great, and you know something happens and we're like, oh, I can't believe I did that. We're used to that feeling of a brokenness in our relationship. Jesus never was. Jesus was never separated from his Father. I and the Father are one. There was always a unity there. But now, Jesus was going to experience his Father turning his back on him. Again, to quote the psalm, the prophecy in the Psalms, Jesus was now going to experience and even say to his Father, my God, my God, why are you forsaken me? And again, that's something you and I can't fully understand. Sin separates a person from a holy God. And because Jesus had no sin, he never once experienced that separation. But yet suddenly, either in anticipation of that separation, or it's already begun, the separation, one way or the other, I'm not exactly sure, but Jesus now is beginning to experience it. And I believe that's what the anguish is about, that his righteous soul is dreading the severed relationship with his father. Verse 39, going a little further, he fell on his face. He prays, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He took a few disciples with him, and then he went a little further from them, because as we saw earlier, what Jesus was about to accomplish, he would have to accomplish by himself. It would be a transaction that would take place between him and his father and no other. And so he goes a little bit further and he prays, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I imagine each of us here, we know the story. The cup does not pass from him. Jesus will go to the cross and he will die uh, an ignominious death on that cross. And that tells us two things about Jesus' prayer. Jesus said, if it's possible, let this cup pass and the cup doesn't pass. It tells us two things. Number one, one of the other. Number one is that the Father is unable to do anything. So please take this cup from me, let it pass. And the Father's like, I, I wish I could, I can, I'm sorry. So it either tells us that, or it tells us that it is not possible to affect salvation for sinful human beings unless Jesus goes to the cross. And the testimony of Scripture is that it's the latter of those two possibilities. That the only way that man could be saved from their sin, woman could be saved from her sin, is if Jesus bore that sin upon the cross. Peter would boldly declare a little, just two months later, he would say this, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given uh, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It was not possible for salvation to occur any other way, and thus Jesus went to the cross. He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass. Now, this is not the first time Jesus spoke of a cup that particular evening. You may recall, we looked at it earlier. It felt like an hour earlier, right? It was probably an hour earlier there. I know it felt that way for you here. But just an hour earlier in this evening, maybe two hours earlier, Jesus extended that cup to his disciples, you may recall. And he said, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In that moment, Jesus was extending, as part of that Passover meal, the cup of fellowship. And it speaks of, if you will, the fellowship that would be broken with a holy God. So sinners cannot have fellowship with a holy God. But Jesus is extending his cup to them, that they might in the future enjoy fellowship 
with the Holy God. And here now, He is taking a second cup to Himself. And that second cup is the cup of God's wrath. Jesus is exchanging one cup for another. And He's taking it and He's making it His own. Jesus, again, exchanging the cup of fellowship that He eternally enjoyed with the Father and takes unto Himself the cup of God's judgment upon sin. And in doing that, as he exchanges the cups that he previ- the cup that he previously had and takes a new, he exchanges the cup that you previously had, and he gives you a new. So that no longer are you under the wrath of God, but rather now you can enjoy fellowship with God. He provides a door through which we as sinners might be able to enter into the presence of God. Now notice, he says, if it's possible, Lord, let this cup pass. Notice, nevertheless... Not as I will, but as you will. That Jesus came to the point of decision there in Gethsemane where he could either go his own way and do his own thing or he could lay down his life as a ransom for others. And as we see, Jesus chose the latter saying, not as I will, but as you will. Now, it wasn't as if he hadn't decided before so to do so, but now he came, if you will, to that point of no return where in agreeing to do the will of the Father and give his life, in moments he would be in the hands of the chief priests and the leaders. It's been said he may have drank the cup at Calvary, been crucified there at Calvary, but he decided to drink the cup here in Gethsemane. And so that makes this a very holy place. Now, when we go to Israel, a lot of times over in Israel, you'll see a lot of groups getting down on the ground, kissing the ground and things like that. We're in the holy land or whatever. That's not how we approach it. It's just land or whatever. And it's an opportunity for us to learn and to meditate on what the Lord has done and is doing in our hearts and all of that. And so we don't really have this whole holy kind of thing. But there's something about Gethsemane. When you go to Gethsemane and you sit there and they have trees that they, uh, what are they called, horticulturalists? say, are 2,000-year-old trees. Maybe not the one Jesus fell down in front of, but one in that park at that time. And you realize the transaction that took place in that place. And it's very moving. It's a holy place indeed because the struggle of the cross was won right here at this garden. And it was not won for his benefit. I think that's so important to never forget. He's not better off because we can go to heaven. Wow, look at all the people. You know, like our president gets all excited with big crowds. That doesn't do something for Jesus. It doesn't make him better than he was before. His going to the cross is for your benefit and for my benefit. And it was one right here as we said. God was making him who knew no sin to be made sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of of God. And Jesus was willingly taking that exchange on himself to effect our salvation. And my friends, how can you not praise the Lord for doing that? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in this truth. We are humbled by it. Uh, My heart certainly is touched by the awareness of these things in a fresh way. Lord, that you would love us as you love us. And that you would take on what you took on 
on our behalf. So Lord, we rejoice in these happenings that we consider afresh this morning. And Lord, do pray that you would continue to do a stirring in our hearts. And we ask our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, now's a good time. If you're not a, a, a believer in Jesus Christ, you've never come to the cross, now's a good time. You've considered these things. You've saw what we've seen in the Scripture. While we're singing these last couple of songs, give your life to Jesus. He went to the cross for your sin. If you agree and acknowledge that you're a sinner, He went to the cross for you. And He took your place. Receive that gift of salvation and the Lord will change your heart and will make you a new man or a new woman. I'd also I'd say anyone else, maybe those type of people that are praying that prayer, but anyone else, if you would like someone to pray for you, we have counselors outside the door. Turn left when you go out of the room and in the foyer area over there and we can pray with you through this process. Amen, everybody. God bless you. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.